Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast. I'll be touring in many cities telling stand-up comedy jokes for the Fun Comfortable Tour. Uh, if you go to funcomfortabletour.com, you can see a bunch of those dates. I've been trying to envision what a fun, comfortable chair looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine it's just a very padded clown you're sitting on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've kind of uh, imagined the chair from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, yeah, it's cherry. There we go. It's cherry. Yeah. 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 I feel, I hope a lot of the bits feel more like a chair. I hope they're more on the fun side than the uncomfortable side. Because I've been writing a lot of stuff <laughs> lately that's... <laughs> All that death and grown as a person stuff we're a little well, worried about. It's also, it's also sort of Birbiglia's idea of like going to the place where you're uncomfortable and then writing... You know, like, oh, here's some... Because sometimes when you're, when you're telling these stories, people can either relate to them or go, oh, good Lord. Why would That's someone... That's my favorite audience reaction when I say something. Why would someone do that? When you get that shocked and comfortable sound, you're like, yeah. no, guys, it's funny, I'm alive. Yeah. It's all... Everything worked out. <laughs> like those old t- Reader's Digest stories with the guy trapped in the mountains. You're like, oh, I'll be killed. You know what it is? A lot of time it's like, uh, it's like uh, taking a bunch of kids to the zoo and you're marching like, we're going to go see the elephants. And you turn around and there's no kids. You're like, where'd I lose you? <laughs> What happened? I was here. I was like, oh, da, da, da. I was all marching, and then, uh, and then you went away. I like when you can feel losing the room. Like you say that one thing too far, and just yeah. And then when you're a young comic, rather than pulling back, then you oh you go dig ten in. times farther. Oh, I put those heels in. Oh, you thought that was uncomfortable? <laughs> I had someone in a bar. I'm shitting into my own hand right now. <laughs> I had someone in a bar yell, "You're done." <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, am I? Oh, well, that I... bit went on five minutes longer. Yes, maybe I'm done. <laughs> uh, now, this episode of the podcast is Sam Raimi, and uh, he is promoting Murder of a Cat, which is executive produced by himself and directed by his wife, Gillian. Uh, it's available on VOD and iTunes right now. Here's the Nerds Podcast with Sam Raimi. I had to say his name. Like it was, uh, like he's in the Saturday Night Live cast. No, I was thinking more like this is a Friday night horror movie Don, that is narrated by Don Pardo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now entering nerdist.com.
I moderated the Oz panel. Oh, you did? At Comic-Con, yeah. You did a great job. Thanks. I do remember that. You were funny. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, you got the crowd going. It was really fun. I, uh, that's, that was, that's my sneaky... <clears throat> that's my sneaky trick is figuring out... I somehow figured out how to infiltrate Hall H because otherwise I would never get in. It is impossible <laughs> to get into Hall H. So it's been like a 20-year career plan. It's just to get into Hall H. Yeah. Just younger me was like, someday. Uh, I know what I'll do. And there's just all this montage of event staff going, not this year. I'm like, damn it. And then you're running on the beach with Apollo Creed. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Speed reading comic books. Yeah. And then Apollo died yeah. because of hubris. And then now, uh, now I'm on stage at Hall H. But it, it was uh, it was really great to meet you, and uh, I'm so, we're all kind of huge fans of yours. So Thanks this is that, really man. awesome yeah. that you came on. It's the to be here, man. How's everything going? What are you What are you doing? What's happening now? What What are your days like? Are we on the show already? This started, Sam. Oh God, I know. <laughs> the spotlight is on. Well, I've been doing a lot of gardening. Guess good. Good. Growing uh, satsuma mandarins and. Honey mandarins. Um, and are those, uh, are those uh, perennial plants or I don't know. I don't know what the terminology is. They're evergreen. They, um, they produce fruit twice a year, the citrus do, and um, I also grow avocados, three different kinds of avocados. I'll save you money. We're growing avocados. What, I didn't really, what three different kinds of avocados are there? Well, there's, there's an A and B variety. You need really both. They cross-pollinate. All right. Basically, I have a, a holiday avocado. And a fuerte avocado and Hass. Okay. Hass is the jam. What? Why is that the jam? It's the biggest one. It's the most creamy. Oh, uh, why do you know so much about avocados? I, can put, I, I, the other day, tried to put avocado on pizza just to see if it would work. It didn't. No. But I'm glad I made the effort. Why would it not work, though? Wait, it would work after the fact, sandwich? right? I didn't like it how hot it got and mushy. Oh, you don't? Yeah, just do it after. I, no, uh, that's what I did. And it it's still work. got hot and mushy? I don't think it works. Let the pizza cool down. Is it, uh, it, what is it about gardening that you, because it's not having to deal with the film business? Is, is that part of it? No, it's just beautiful. It's uh, all the secrets in the universe are in a, in a garden. You see uh, the whole cycle of life, of course, from the, the growing of the seeds to the, creature, the plant growing to full maturity to flowering. That's the fantastic part of it, the sense, the visual of it. And then actually to have to grow fruit trees... Then you're, the flower turns into something delicious. It's pretty incredible, the whole thing. Is there something that you've had for years and years that's, that you planted that then became like a giant tree? Uh, no, no, because uh, we've moved every six years or so. So I just leave the trees behind and um, it's start, time to start over. You ever go back and visit them, see how they're doing? I've peered over walls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do do that. I, I used to live here. No, it's, I'll just be a second. I, how you doing, old friend? <laughs> it is like that, you know? Yeah. More than I care to admit. But I like to see how the tree's doing. And when you see it hasn't, hasn't been taken care of very well, you really want to knock on the door and say something, and then you get a hold of yourself and say, <laughs> Murder! <laughs> oh, hi, I'm Sam Raimi. <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, you killed my fucking tree. <laughs> Spent a lot of time on that. You should just wait for them to have positive equity in the house and sell it, and then you buy it back. <laughs> she have to hide a Necronomicon in a tree and then just see if someone finds it. Yeah, I should do that. Well, you know, I used to hide things when I would move out of a house. I used to take silver dollars and hide them in secret places in the house. When you moved out, just so people would be like, 
Exactly. How old do you think this is? It's probably been here for a hundred years. If you if you really want to fuck with people, you should uh, just like take some movie posters and then just age them somehow, and then like get some old scripts and just put like some dust on them, and then just write a bunch of like horrible like first draft of Evil Dead, and then just like have it be a completely different thing. (laughs) It's Evil Dead in space. I don't think he'd ever want want to see this. There's a letter missing. It's Evil Dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ghost Dad too. Evil Dad. Evil Dad. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Come on, Sam. You, I'm gonna do you it. Know, <laughs> I'm gonna do it. You got time to garden? You can do that. You convinced me. How is this here? He didn't move in until 2006. <laughs> how long have you been? How long has gardening been a thing for you? Have you done this your whole life, or does this was this something that you picked up? I mean, where I'm going with this is I'm trying to draw a comparison between how you approach gardening and how you approach filmmaking. Oh, boy. Don't drag me there. No? What? (laughs) But I've always been a gardener ever since I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. My father would have uh, tomato plants, just a a summer garden. That's how you can grow in Detroit. A few months of the year, you can grow things. And I always dreamed of what it must be like for the Californians and Floridians to grow citrus and subtropical fruits. And then I get to move out here, and it's like my dream came true. It's nothing better than being able to grow an orange and pick it fresh, and it's delicious and it smells so great, you know? Well, I'm glad this really successful film career was your ticket to come out here to grow avocados. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that worked out. It. You were You're, trying to get into Hall H. He's trying to grow avocados. He's trying to grow avocados. <laughs> there, there is something to that, though. There's a, this guy now, Peter Girardi. He, um, he like, is so busy always, like, developing stuff. or I mean, He never gets to a point where he's just, like, making stuff. So he's gotten way into just building furniture and woodworking and it's kind of like he explains it where it's like um the further he gets into like his life of like just like developing the more he's like even gotten rid of electronic power tools where he just hand planes stuff well, and it's all because he just wants to do stuff with his hands he yeah. actually wants to make something as opposed to all the talk that happens well with- the creative like the, the creative process there's so many different things that can get in the way and it's not it's not a to b to c it's like a to f and then back to a and then yeah. to q but then, yeah, but just to be able to go, there is a specific set of rules that if you follow them, will produce this effect, and you can see it happen. It's very comforting. Yeah. I completely agree. And it's a solitary pursuit, and it's one you can completely get lost in. And then the moment you don't have time for it, you can step inside and go back to work. So it's, it's also a great break from work to step outside to a garden. That's a great idea, because I have a little yard now. Oh yeah, I think I could. I think I think I might want to start gardening. What would you make? Sh- herbs? I don't know. I is just it herbs are good. It is sunny. Yeah, yeah. There oh, is sun definitely. in the backyard. There's also there's some trees. So there's some shady spots, but there's definitely some sunny spots too. And I just have these areas where there's right now there's just um, you know colorful. Col- no, there's colorful weeds. <laughs> there's colorful weeds. I uh, definitely definitely a tree. All right, trees low maintenance actually. All right, don't have to dig it up every year and replant it. I got a lemon tree already. What else should I throw back there? Well, what's your favorite fruit? Um, I I like apples. I like gala apples, but I don't know that's, that's if those tough, are, right? I don't know if those are grow here. Well, they like a little colder weather than this, yeah. and I think uh, most of those stone fruits like a good fifty hours of winter chilling. So there's a lot of things you can't grow great here. Okay, but I would take advantage of the subtropical quality. Do you like guavas or? Something like that. Give it a shot. You know why? Because guava is one of those things that makes you sound like you know what you're doing. 
I got a guava tree. Like, it's so yeah, yeah. uncommon. There's a guava glaze on this piece of chicken I made. Yeah, wow. <laughs> he grows guava. Like, yeah. it's, just not, it's not. How exotic. <laughs> okay, guava tree. I can throw a guava tree back there. How long will that no, take? No, you have to plant. The, you can't just get what? a guava tree and throw it back there. No, I'll throw money at it. No, it's not, <laughs> just not what you're talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have time to wait. <laughs> I don't have the patience to. You mean I have to plant something? And... Tree go now. Tree no. go now. No, 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 no. No, that's why I don't have kids. I don't have, I don't have time. Exactly. I just don't have time. Uh, uh, how long have you lived in Los Angeles? For about 30 years. Oh, you have? Oh, Yeah, okay. I've been here for a long time. Did you move? You're from Royal Oak, though, like specifically Royal Oak, right? That's right. Uh, well, I, grew, I was born in Royal Oak, but I lived in the city of Detroit proper. Mm-hmm. And um, then we had an office in Ferndale, Michigan. But I know where Royal Oak is. It's a very cool town. Ferndale's great. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just performed there a few months ago. Like nice. Ferndale and Royal Oak, are, they're, they're cool little spots. They are. That's the place to be. And now Detroit itself is really coming back. Good. That's what I hear. It's, uh, it's just like so many like, artistic types have just been moving. Just like any kind of low... You know, low pay town. It's like you go there because you have time to like be creative, and it's like a ton of people are moving there right now, right? That's what I've heard, and there's now a supermarket there, and I'm just waiting for <laughs> families to move in. Well, there was no place to actually buy groceries. I mean, you really couldn't really? even live there for the longest time. Oh, oh wow, God. they got Blockbuster, but it, they just got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Blockbuster is bringing back the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you were to make a RoboCop movie. What would you do with it? I loved loved RoboCop. It was really cool. And um, it was so funny. You know, it had a great dark sense of humor to it. And it was awesomely cool. And I like uh, whatever that thing was. I'm the 64. The Ed 209. The Ed 209. Yeah. It was so, just drop your weapon. I did drop the weapon. (laughs) Suck down the weapon. You were five seconds. Yeah, I mean, when they they, they did the remake and then they they took all the humor elements out of it. Yeah, let's see the remake. Yeah, the remake was like the original movie. It was such a great, first of all, not far off on the commentary for like TV uh, yeah for TV yeah. and like you know like like bl- American bloodlust yeah but uh, and the gas guzzling SUX two thousand so what you mean you you seem to always straddle this line of like the you you could always tell a Sam Raimi movie because there's a good amount of uh, like there's a there's some good comedy around the edges that Hot sort things. of that sort of weave through yeah there's a lot of in- Comedy in the horror pictures that I work on. And, you know, because I found that setting up a suspense sequence leading to a scare is really similar to when I would make the comedy pictures, setting up a joke and delivering the punchline. It's remarkably similar. Sometimes you can set up a suspense sequence and play it for a laugh, and it actually works as a, as a comedy setup. People are on edge. They are anticipating something. You give them something different, and they, they bust up in laughter. Or you give them too much of what they expect. It's... Remarkably similar the construction of those two things. I mean, what do you? I wonder what was happening in the in the late seventies, early eighties, where because uh, you know obviously because of Evil Dead, and then also American Werewolf in London. Like there, there was there was there was like a movement happening where guys oh, were like, you know, things don't just have to be all you know super scary or all just uh, just comedies. Like, yeah. what do you what Return do you think? Of this, Dead is in there too. Yeah, like yeah. what do you what do you think the genre mashing? Where do you think that that came from? It came from long ago. The great Classics like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Right. That was one of the scariest movies I ever saw, and I laughed my head off during it, too. <laughs> but also things like uh, Bowery Boys. I wouldn't know the name of it, but you'd find them in a haunted house sometimes. And uh, that combination was really exciting to me. Or Three Stooges in a Haunted House. Yes. So that combo has always worked. I'd, I'd love to see 
a modern version of it. Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Did you see that? Yes, I'll be done nuts. Such a brilliant mm-hmm. comedian. Are they trying to make that again? Are they trying to do a remake of Ghost Are and Mr. They? Chicken? I thought I heard about that. No, I don't or know. Could have just been some interview. That'd be a weird yeah. one to pluck out of the just to pluck out of a movie and be like, "We're going to remake this <laughs> Don Knotts movie that no one remembers." It's, but so, it's such a he's so great, such a great comedian. You know, you watch any one of his reactions; he's so brilliant and um, really underrated, I think. But you know, the other side of that is the kind of movies that John Landis would make, like you said, American Werewolf in London, which really features the horror first, right. comedy second, or Evil Dead, the kind of movies that I make. Horror first, comedy second. Just the flip side of that same same genre. How are you? Fi- how do you find the balance? I mean, obviously, you don't want one to overtake the other. So, what is it? Is it just sort of trial and error? Or- um, I don't know. I just uh, like any writer or director. I just go with the story that I think is fun and exciting, and try and like a comedian deliver a, a punch that I think is going to get the audience. And uh, it's a lot of it's guesswork, and and I'm wrong a lot of the time. It's, I figure it out. Watching the the movie with with the audience. Oh yeah, wow. so you actually do you watch with the audience and then go back in. Any variation, like I might be in the editing process and maybe a friend comes by, watches something, and says, you know, that's not that scary. I don't know why, but it's not scary. Or you might say that scared and get me because I, you know, I knew it was coming. You need to misdirect here or something, or you need to let down the tension. Somebody might say to me, and uh, then then give them a scare. So all through the creation process, the writing, the directing, the editing. We're thinking about the flow and the response of friends or audience members. Then, yeah, all the way through the test screening and getting a real unknown audience to watch it. And that's always a shocking experience for any filmmakers, and I'm sure you, you know. Uh, because everything you thought was working in the editing room doesn't work or works differently than you thought. Or suddenly you realize this audience is so much smarter than I assumed they'd be. You know, I gave them steps one, two, three, and four to get to five. They don't need step two. I see that now. They're already way ahead of me. I got There's like a collective uh, intelligence, I think, that happens in an audience. They get smarter uh, the more p- intelligent people that are, that are together. <laughs> it's like you watch a Coen Brothers picture. You may not have thought something was funny until someone giggles and you realize, oh, I see. That's how their, uh, their approach to humor is. I'll, I'll be on guard for that now. Somebody just tuned me in with a, with a chuckle. Maybe that's how mm-hmm. we get smarter as an audience. Or maybe it's like this collective energy I can't quite put my finger on, but I do feel it in an audience. There's a subconscious communication that goes on, I think. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you, can you think of an example where you were convinced that something would work and then you got in front of an audience and they... Because you, ultimately you are forming a relationship with your audience as a creator of something. It's like, I don't... I don't but some people are like, you know, fuck the audience. I'm just going to do this for me. Like, okay, well, I guess. But, yeah. you know, like, then don't show it to anyone. <laughs> but, but ultimately, you are creating a relationship with them. So wh- can you think of, is there an example of something, either, you know, from Evil Dead or anything, where you were like, that is going to work, and the audience was like, no. Wow. Well, that happens all the time, where I think something's going to work, and it and doesn't. Um, it's usually a joke that, that they did not find funny. <laughs> uh, you know, there's this quiet in the audience or an uneasy shuffling and, uh, <laughs> you, and I, I take those out I, I remove them and it, it happens all the time to me and it's the great that was the, how I learned how to become a filmmaker I'd make Super 8 movies in college we would charge $1.25 we'd show it to the audience and they just didn't like them <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'd go back and, and I thought you know, I'm going to cut out that joke that didn't work I'm going to show it next week and this crowd also didn't like the movie, but at least I didn't have to sit through that very that bad one joke. <laughs> but eventually we'd cut out literally all the parts that didn't work, and we'd end up with shorts that 
had a joke here that worked. They liked this little piece of action and liked the ending. So we'd uh, cut our movies drastically, and, and it was a great experience being in, being in the crowd. Because they're very vocal. You know, you're running in the projector, and they turn around and they say, This fucking sucks. <laughs> you paid $1.50 for this, man. <laughs> Back then was a lot, a lot of cash for a college kid. That's your, that, your, that's your test group focus screening right there. Is yeah. there there's, no thing, there's no thing they fill out the end, but yeah. Detroit style is just like, <laughs> Fucking sucks. Okay, well, we'll just edit that, yeah. and then uh, you can come back next Thank week. Thank you for the input. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Glad I got to be heard. But you, but you, you, you have this. Um, you, you seem to have this nice thing of you know working with your friends and working with your family and and your car. I don't know. There's just like the, like in the, in the Sam in the Sam Raimi verse. It just seems like there, there's a lot of recurring people that you guys all started together and you've yeah. all gotten to see each other sort of blossom together too that's right I've, I've never been a solo guy I've worked with Bruce Campbell my high school buddy yeah. Scott Spiegel another friend of mine from high school that made Super 8 movies and we heard that each other made movies so we'd go over each other's house and see each other's films and like I'd see Scott Spiegel films and I'd think oh my god you're just a high school kid you, you built a set that's actually a sheet you know, tacked up on something, and you've got a real door there, a fake door. <laughs> and this other kid, Bruce Campbell, he had a breakaway vase in his movie, smashed it up. And said, "I couldn't believe it." And um, we, le- I learned a lot from those guys, and I think we learned from each other. And we've always supported each other, the band of uh, high school, college filmmakers. What was Bruce like in high school? He was insanely funny and um, really a square. He did not fit in anywhere. He was not a jock or was not a popular kid. And he uh, was always part of the theater scene. He was a good actor. That was his thing. Loved being in the, in the uh, high school shows. Yeah. And then at what point did you say, hey, let's start trying to make movies for reals? Well, we went off to college for like a year and a half. And I started to show the movies for money. And then we realized, hey, we're actually making more money showing our movies to the college kids than we are being a projectionist or a cab driver or whatever our other jobs were. So we said, let's see if we can't make a living doing this and um, drop out of school, see if we can't find dentists and doctors and raise money from them to make our first feature film. So my partner said, okay, but you can't be making these comedies you make. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I looked out at the uh, movies that are made for like less than $100,000 or $200,000. They're all horror movies. There's no, like, low, back then there was no independent scene. So he said, can you make a horror movie? I said, I don't really like horror movies. <laughs> so I had to... He said, well, it doesn't matter what you like. Um, you're going to go... This is my partner, Rob Tappert, my roommate. He said, we're going to go see a horror movie, and you tell me if you can make a movie that good. So he went to go see this movie, and um, the audience was screaming, and they loved it. And he goes, can you make a movie that good? And I said, No. I cannot make a movie that good. I had no idea horror movies were so good. I, I hadn't seen them because they always scared me too much. Um, that was Halloween that we saw. But then I started to see other horror films. And unlike most artists who are inspired by works of greatness, I was inspired every time I saw a bad horror movie. Because I'd say to him, I can make a movie that bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. You just needed your bar lowered. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny how that worked for me. But every bad movie I saw gave me confidence and um, sent me forward believing that I could actually do it. And so did you sort of model, were you like, oh, there's something sort of ironically funny about a bad, a bad horror movie, like a, like a really inexpensive horror movie? Was that, were you sort of inspired by that? No, not really. That, I would more sit through them and think, 
God, there's so many bad parts. I got to remember not to shoot the bad parts <laughs> and just shoot the good parts. I like this. The audience is screaming here. Yeah, there's blood and gore. There's real suspense, but this talking business. I don't. Nobody in all the movies that I went to go see that year, and I saw like 20 drive-in movies or in the theaters. Um, no one cared about the characters. The writers didn't, for starters, and the, therefore the audience didn't. There was no investment in them. So I just thought I'm not going to spend a lot of time creating characters that nobody cares about. I'm right. just going to deliver the good stuff. So um, the thrills, the chills, the outrageous visuals, cool camera shots, and that's really how we approached Evil Dead. Yeah, and, and so this is really interesting, though, that in a time when I wouldn't have really thought it was possible that you guys were already thinking about the business of film, not just, not just oh, it'd be fun if we made it, but really, the I think we can make money at this, and we're screening these and actually making money. And this... And like now, I, I could see people doing that because it's just so the technology so e- much easier. But back then, how did how did it even occur to you that you could just sort of like, hey, we'll sort of be like uh, like trunk tr- out of the trunk filmmakers. We'll just make shit and drive it around and show it to people. It didn't really it occur to us very very much. It, this is back in 1970s, and Detroit was a failing auto town, and um, there was a lot of unemployment coming our way, and the city was really coming down downhill. Back then, I loved Detroit, but that was the economic reality of it. And we, the furthest thing from anyone's mind, we were actually going to Hollywood becoming a movie maker. We just thought it was impossible. Uh, so it was, it was a big leap for us. And in fact, there was one time a studio executive that came to Franklin, Michigan, and his, this guy said, oh, my uncle's a studio executive. He's coming to town. We said, can we show him our movies? No, he doesn't want to see your Super 8 movies. Please, we need to get a connection to Hollywood. We need to talk to this guy. Let, him, let us at least show our movies, please. So he begged his uncle. He really didn't want to do it. He, we came over his house. We showed our movies one after another to this guy. And we said, what do you think? We want to break into Hollywood. He said, I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus. No. Not with what I just saw, boys. Not with what I just saw. Oh. So we were really bummed out. And uh, then we said, you know what? We don't really have a choice. We need to do this. We have to make a business of this because we don't want to be selling furniture. I sold furniture. It was awful. Was, uh, <laughs> my dad's furniture sh- shop. Basically, you, you're supposed to take as much money from the poor sucker that comes in as possible. Sure. That's how you're successful as a furniture salesman. He says, you see these, this uh, number? I said, yeah, it says $200. He says, yeah, but turn over the back of it. I turn over the back, it says like XXX300. I said, what's that, XXX300? He says, you divide that number in half, you can sell it as, as low as $150. That 300, you cut it in half, that's how much you know you can, you can let the guy talk you down to. So I turn it over, it's like, oh, it says 200, but I can let him talk me down to 150. I said, oh, cool, secret code. So some guy comes in, how much for that air conditioner? Oh, this little baby, you put out 2,000 BTUs, you can sell it to you for $200. And then he says, well, I'll only give you 175. Turn it over, crap. You got a deal. And I loved it at first. But then I remember a poor family came in, and I could see that they were really poor, and they, Detroit is super hot in the summer, and they needed an air conditioner. How much for that air conditioner? Oh, $200. So I see the family huddle together and huddle, and I'm waiting. Okay, we'll take it. I went, oh, but you're supposed to say no. I'll only pay $150. And, then I, and after that, I went, oh, this is a ripoff, basically. You, you basically... Just, I didn't like the retail business. It's not a good business for me. No, no, yeah. it's a terrible. So I mean, sad. I'm no good at it. I'm it's no good business. at it either. Like having yeah. to sell people because I'm usually the guy that'll be like, you know, you don't, you don't need to pay this for this. Like I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm the one. I did tell you. I wasn't allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah. No. no yeah, you're not I, allowed to say that. 
It's a, it's I did tell a fundraising once uh, where you call the per, a, a lady who gave like you know five dollars once to a good cause and you try to get her to give more and then you're supposed to ask three times. That's what they tell you. You ask them three times. That's how you knock. No one comes to the door ever one or two, three. And then um, a lady started to cry because like she's like we gave money because we had money and now my husband's gone and I was and I started to cry and then I quit. <laughs> oh yeah. no, yeah. I had that similar one too. Oh, when I wow. when I went to UCLA and we would telemarket to get people to give money to the university and and I called and the phone must have rang like fifteen times and finally there was a hello. Oh. And I'm like oh hi you know and gave her the spiel and she was like. It took me five minutes to walk to the phone. Like it was one of those. She was her answer was just like how rough of a time she was having. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, oh, I think my soul just shit itself. I don't think I don't feel good at all. Well, that's that's really interesting that you were that you were motivated by what you knew you didn't want to do, so you had to make it work out. Yeah, and that's to answer your question why we thought of it as a business. Because I knew that my father was going to pull me back into that furniture store as a business unless I can claim I had a different kind of business. So I came at it like i got to show him and myself and everybody that I can make a business out of this and make money with this. And it's for me, I don't know why I think it's any better morally, but I do, uh, raising money from these guys and making a movie, selling tickets and paying back the investors. Uh, it should be the same type of Immoral feeling, but I don't have it. Yeah. Were other people doing that? Like, did you see? It's like, oh, these other guys are showing their movies and like charging for it, or did you just kind of like see other people putting on like like were their bands playing? And you're like, oh, we can do a similar thing, but with movies. No, there wasn't anyone else doing it. I, I had to yeah. form my own film club to do it, oh, to let man. the university legally let me charge admission and show movies. They were showing like uh, you know porno movies or uh, like weird movies sometimes in the residence halls, but. Um, I, when I saw that they were showing other kinds of movies, I thought, I'm going to show my own student movies and charge admission. That's fucking great. To fund them. So, what, so what, did you shoot Evil Dead in Michigan? We tried to, but they didn't have their film commission up and running then. Now they have a great one, but back then it was just uh, not funded at all. So we went down to Tennessee because they had a film commission. They sent us pictures of cabins and a bridge that we could destroy that was part of something that the script required. And um, we went down there, and they said, you could rent this cabin or this cabin, and there's two different bridges that are abandoned that the Department of Transportation or of the state of Tennessee, I don't know what they're called, um, would let you destroy. Wow. So it's great. We'll, we'll be there in a minute. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, that's geez. awesome. What, what part of Tennessee were you guys in? Um, a city called Morristown, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a little cabin in the woods there that they let us, uh, at the time, these... Uh, all these steers had broken into or using it as like a barn. But we cleaned it up and made that the cabin in the story. Oh, wow. And then as you were making it, what, what, were you, what did it feel like as you were making it? Did it feel like, oh, we're making something that looks completely different than anything else? It was more like trying to survive. We didn't have any money. We barely were eating. We'd work like 16, 17-hour days. And then somebody stole our, some of our power tools from the place. So we had to, one of us always had to sleep there. And this is a cabin in the middle of the woods with nobody else around. And one time I was sleeping there guarding the cabin at night. And I woke up and there was a man sleeping next to me. <laughs> oh, I thought, what the hell? Who are you? And it was just like some guy from Tennessee that wandered in out of the cold, warming himself up by the fire. And he, he's a moonshine salesman. I thought, my God, this guy could have killed me in my sleep. You know, it was just a weird, it was a weird 
town, weird time and place. <laughs> or was yeah. he ever there at all? Ooh. It's weird when you're making a horror movie and you wake up and a guy's just next to you. Like yeah, that's yeah. Was freaky. You were already sort of freaked out. After that, I would sleep on the hill. I didn't want to sleep in the cabin anymore. Uh, and the hill was actually was a cemetery in, in the um, in the movie, so it was a really weird. It was less freaky for me to sleep up there than in that cabin. After that. <laughs> so then, uh, when you so you made this movie and then you released it and then and then what happens? Like, what, does anything immediately happen, or is it like, oh, I guess back back to make another thing? We made the movie and we took it around to every distributor. We'd show it to them. We'd rent a screening room. And they all said, no, absolutely not. You're out of your mind. You know, this, this movie is awful. And we went to every single movie company in Hollywood and New York, and they all said no. And we were starting to get a little scared. And at the time, we didn't even know very much about the foreign market. But a foreign sales agent by the name of Irvin Shapiro saw the film. This guy was about 85 years old. And uh, we said, well, did you love it? He said, it ain't gone with the wind, <laughs> but I think I can make some money with it. <laughs> so he took it to the Cannes Film Festival, which the real importance with independent people is, independent filmmakers, it's really the Cannes market. That's the, indi- the importance in the business. And a good sales agent like Irvin knew that Italy had 72 theaters that would show this type of unrated horror film, or that France would show it only in 25, or that Germany would ban it. So he knew the value of a, or lack of value of a film like this in each of the different markets. And he would tell me wild stories. Oh, yeah, I started the Cannes Film Festival market years ago. I used to trade uh, Picasso pictures for brioche. And I thought, you're telling me wild lies now. But I did go to his house one day years later and see all these early Picassos on the Oh, shit. shit. And he would tell me stories about how he would trade early films with the Russians for vodka and caviar. Because there was not actually a foreign exchange system back then. Oh, man. And then he would give them the negatives and they'd give them uh, cases and cases of vodka. It was really strange. So he started selling the film to Italy, to Europe, basically, and then it made some money. That's right. And, he, and we, he sold it to Palace Pictures in England. They opened it. It became a number one film for them. And so all of a sudden, the American distributor said, okay, what's that horror film? We will, we will distribute it. Wow. That's really interesting. I mean, like, because the first time someone showed me Evil Dead, it was like, this is fucking amazing and you have to see this movie. So I don't know. I guess it's sort of strange to me that, you know, that so many people were like, no. What was it that they didn't like about it? Uh, it's so violent and over the top, and it's, uh, it's obviously so incredibly low budget and cheap looking. I think it would be easy for most of these film companies to just say, I'd rather not show this to my boss. <laughs> 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 but it, it uh, turned out to be a product that they could sell, so, wow. uh, as, as the foreign market proved, so we finally got an American distributor. So then, w- when, when did you get the opportunity to make Evil Dead 2? After that, we made a terrible movie that was butchered by the studios called Crime Wave. They, I liked Crime Wave. They, took our, they went with me star Bruce Campbell a couple weeks before it started to shoot. They changed the music and they re-edited the whole thing. It was really unpleasant. But we said the only movie we liked making was of our two was Evil Dead because we had complete control. So we went to Dino De Laurentiis and said, will you give us the money to make a sequel? And he said he would. So it was really out of the... No one else probably wanted us to make a movie for them after that, after we made that terrible crime wave. But So with Crime Wave, was that 
what kind of a learning experience was that in terms of like how the film business works? I'm like, oh, what do you mean you can just take it and do whatever you want? I guess I must have known that, but I didn't really think anyone would do that because I've always worked with people that have respect for the director and they're, you know, they're finishing the movie and I thought it might happen, but, even, but I thought at least I'd finish the movie first. But right after we were done shooting in the midst of like two weeks of editing, they took the movie away. Hmm. Oh my God. It's really weird. And did you... I mean, were you having conversations with the studio at the time? Like, please don't do that. Or did they just shut you out? Yes. They wouldn't let me edit the picture. They hired their own editor and they recut it themselves. And, oh, it's too unpleasant to talk about. But what I learned was have creative control over your project. No matter what the project is, as long as you can be the storyteller, it's the right movie to make. It doesn't even matter what the genre or what the script or what the budget. You just have to have control over all the elements. So... I did with Evil Dead 2. Do you know, let me have that. And, um, and we made Evil Dead 2 next. And so, uh, now, I would imagine Evil Dead 2, you did not have to sleep in the cabin anymore, right? Um, no. <laughs> no, that, was, that was, finally was over. And we actually made a salary, so it was great. Wow. And what did you, what, what sort of lessons did you take from the first one that you went in uh, to the second one with? Like, by that time, you made two movies, and you already made an Evil Dead, so what was it that you... You're like, okay, now I have a very clear vision about this. Did you feel pretty, pretty set on what you were doing? Yes, I did. I felt very confident by the time we shot Evil Dead 2. And I, what I had learned was planning is everything. So spend months and months in pre-production, drawing every single picture, talking about what's going to be in that frame with the visual effects department, with the makeup effects department. Make sure the set is designed to be able to get this shot. What type of camera apparatus or lens will I need to get the camera that low you know the, I want a ground level point of view where well, the camera body won't allow that because back then the camera body was about six inches of metal before you got to the lens so the lowest you'd get would be six inches off the ground so after doing some research I found out there was a prism type system that you could use and rent and to get a shot like this to literally get the point of view half an inch off the floor mm-hmm. so it was things like that uh, just exploring each and every moment of the picture and talking to professionals and non-professionals about how can we make the tools to get this particular shot. And at this point, do you feel like you're an actual director? Like, oh, this is like, now I feel like I'm, this is my business now. Like, this is my profession, and I don't have to go back. I definitely feel that way, but every picture now, I, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of what's that actor going to be like? You know, will they get upset if I tell them their thought process, what I'm thinking that they're thinking? Or um, how do they want to work? Is this really the best way to tell the story? Um, is there any problem with the ending? Is it satisfying for the audience? Is this a proper... Did we set this up enough with the audience? What's too much setup? So I never know what I'm doing and always sometimes sometimes frightened about the project in front of me. And um, But it's always a great journey each and every time I get to make a picture. Is there a genre that you're not... That you tried that you're like, nah, it's not really for me? Um, no, I love, I love all genres. Like, I'd like to... Keep trying different genres. I'd like to make a heist movie. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Never like did one of those. I'd love to make one of those like 1970s mission movies where the group of commandos go in and have to do something uh, like Where Eagles There or uh, Guns in Navarone. But I, I, I love all genres. I'd love to make a real western or a um, anything. It would be really cool. Yeah, I I didn't. I read about it, but I actually hadn't seen it. Unfortunately, but you did you do did you do like a like a like a biker parody movie? No. My brother wrote a script and I helped him on. Okay. Uh, that was a biker parody picture. Do you like, I mean, is it, so these different kind of movies, do, do you feel like 
you want to infuse comedy into stuff, or do, would you just want to make like a straight? Could you make just like a straight heist movie, or be like, oh, but I really need to? Does that that yeah. part of the humor always have to come out? No, I'd like to really uh, try different things, and the humor doesn't have to come out. I made a picture called A Simple Plan, which is a straight thriller. There's no humor, overt humor in that. I mean, outside of what naturally occurs from right. the characters, or um, there's. Uh, Diff- I, 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 there's a baseball picture I made with Kevin Costner right, called for, for the love of the game, game. right a straight Hollywood kind of a picture did you ever see the human giant sketch uh, that was kind of based off of a simple plan or it's what's a, it it's a human giant was a sketch show on MTV and it was Aziz Ansari Paul Shear, Rob Hubel oh. and there, they did a there's a there's a very good because uh, Jason Walliner who's uh, the director of their the sketch show was like a, like a huge fan of yours uh, even oh. so much that he were like he like he heard you wore suits on set so he wears suits on set. And uh, there was a, Sam's like, I don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> like just completely. Do- <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, there's an amazing parody of a simple plan where, like, it's like everything that would have happened, like every like the theme that happens where like they find the stuff and it tears them apart happens within like two minutes. Where oh. it's like these three friends find like this like truck in the woods and it's full of money. Oh, I know that sketch. Yeah, and then it just they all just immediately start trying to kill, start each, other. Trying to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the twist is they see it and it's just like. Uh, Fun bucks. It's yeah, just fake like money. money. Yeah, like, oh. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's Love great. To see that. Uh, so, w- at what point um, do you ever feel like, oh, I've, you know, you, you you feel like you've done everything you wanted to do, but it sounds like you haven't done everything that you want to do yet. No, I really would like to make a great love story. I'd love to. Um, I'd like to make a science fiction picture one day. Some of my favorite films are the great science fiction films, like uh, Day the Earth Stood Still mm-hmm. or The Time Machine. Do you ever see that? Yeah, yeah. of course. That's so awesome. Um, it's so funny. I was just thinking about that film. In that film, I remember thinking as a kid, they got this uh, disc, and they spin this disc, and it's like, we're the 21st century. Yeah. And it it like, tells you the story of what happened, and then it says, and so Mooncoin and it dies. And I, thought, I always thought, oh, that'd be so cool to have a disc like that. Then CDs came along, and I thought, this is actually that thing from the time machine. They made this silver disc that plays music. You know, it's unbelievable. And now it's like CDs are like, little kids, when I walk around with a CD player, it's like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah they don't. Like it's gone now. It's, they think it's dumb. Time yeah. is like speeding up for me C- right CDs now. are like yeah. eight tracks now. <laughs> like so if, you, if, you, if you have a CD Walkman, you're not yeah. cool anymore. No. I, I went to a guy's place and like he had like a whole wall of his CDs. I was like, I was like that's just taking up space. Get rid of those things. <laughs> Come on, man. Hard drives. Yeah. Hard drives are where it's at. <laughs> um, but uh, did, you, did you ever see the, you must have seen uh, Time After Time. Do you know that movie? With... Uh, Malcolm McDowell. Oh, yeah, it's awesome, yeah. Such a great Jack movie. Do you know that movie? I don't think I do. Malcolm McDowell plays H.G. Wells, and David Warner plays this guy that ultimately ends up being, that they find out is Jack the Ripper. Oh. And he, uh, they basically have this sort of like salon, this gentleman's club, where they all talk and, you know, it's like about philosophy and, and utopia. And H.G. Wells, uh, Malcolm McDowell has this idea that in the future there'll be this utopian society with no murder or no anything and so he basically builds a time machine and they discover that this guy in their group David Warner is actually Jack the Ripper so Jack the Ripper gets the time machine and goes forward into the 70s and um uh, and then H.G. Wells chases him through time. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it's amazing. It's amazing because then because they, they find it because the ultimate part of the part of the message is Jack the Ripper going, "This is not a utopia. This is my utopia because yeah, yeah. the world is in such 
It's just violent and it's uh, in such disarray. Like, yeah. it's such a great story. It had great social commentary while being a really funny and adventurous thriller. It was and a sci-fi picture. M- Nicholas Mayer wrote it. He and, wrote Star uh, Trek too. And great director, yeah. great underrated writer. He Have also you, wrote a novel, The 7% Solution, yeah. a great, great book. Have you been watching any of uh, The Black Mirror? No. It's a Charlie Brooker. It's a, a British show, but it's very, it's like near future um, morality tales. Very, uh, it's Twilight Zone uh, one off uh, um, TV show from England. Were you a Twilight TV? Zone fan? Yeah, I loved it. You would love Black Mirror then. It's very, it's like the uh, first episode basically is a, the prime minister getting a phone call, waking up, and the, uh, the duchess has been kidnapped. And the, uh, in like the video of her like asking, like telling what the captors want for you know, her release, it turns out they want the prime minister to fuck a pig on live TV. <laughs> and it, but it's done. Everything's done like real straight. And it's like, and then like, he's like, he's like, like they're, they're just like, he's like, well, we're not doing this. We, we, we got to find out. We, let's not show anyone this video. They're like, it was on YouTube. Everyone has it. And he's like, well, we got to find it. And then it's just this whole thing where everyone, it's like him trying so hard to find the people kidnapping her. So he doesn't have to fuck a pig. Man. And then his like wife is already like his like wife hates him now because she's already imagined it happening. That's really funny. Oh my yeah. God. And it's just, it's fucking great. The whole, uh, there's like six episodes uh, on Netflix right now. It's incredible. It's incredible. Wow. You know, there were, uh, you've obviously been to Comic-Con a bunch. What was your first Comic-Con? Did you go early on? I would go to a Detroit comic book convention back when it was like, you know, William Shatner would be there and probably Rod Serling was going to be there. Back in like the 60s, I was like a six-year-old kid. And I just remembered boxes of these great comic books and pulp magazines. And it wasn't about movies at all. It was just comic books and a little bit of sci-fi TV. And the guy from Logan's Run is going to come, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Michael York. Michael York, yeah. Exactly. That's really <laughs> Michael York. You know the name of a 70s TV star? Yeah, he's not a TV star. Logan's Run's a movie. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. No, Michael York. I mean, he, he had that sort of weird, wide face and that Dutch boy haircut right. and the and the very strange accents. <laughs> I've been renewed. It's such, yeah. a strange, <laughs> such a strange <laughs> movie. But it's... Uh, um, Pre-Star Wars Comic Cons were cool. Oh, yeah, how come? Uh, just because the guy from Man From Uncle was the biggest thing that was going to hit you know, that afternoon. And it was authors, like Ray Bradbury was going to be there. It was just literature and comic book artists. You know, maybe uh, Kirby was going to come to one of them. Right. It was just really about more comic book-centric, and they were the stars, not, uh, not Hollywood so much. It was great. Right. Well, I mean, is, so do you prefer the pre? You prefer, like, the... Because now, the, com- the Comic-Cons... And it is, it's, it's a, I think it's a minor rift with, like, some of the proto-nerds who are sort of like, oh, it's, it should just be about the comics, like the artist alley and the comics, and not yeah. pop culture as a, you know... I mean, you know, like, when you go to Comic-Con, it's like, why does the Lifetime channel have a booth? You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. is that, does, that, does that bother you at all? Yeah, I don't like that so much. No. I really like the older ones. And, you know, maybe they do have a comic book convention that's back to comic books now. I don't know. There are lots of them, yeah. There, there really are. There okay. are. They're smaller. Then I've got no complaints, as long as, they, <laughs> as long as they're out there. I mean, I don't want to... I hope this doesn't bum you out, but I think there was a, I think there was a fundamental shift in the tone of Comic-Con's after uh, X-Men and Spider-Man. I think those were like... Oh, you're blaming me. I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming you. No, I see what this is about. Now that we got you here. I, I think wow. it's good. I thought we were going to just talk about general, you know, trends. I, I, and, think, and, it's, I think it's... I'm one of 
one of the people that thinks it's good. Sounds like he's something. blaming you, Sam. No. Yeah. I'm one of the people that thinks it's a good thing. Go on, pile on, Foss. <laughs> I, for one, respect what you've done for Cinema. False. <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you why. Because uh, it was so hard to have good superhero movies when I, when I was growing up. There were so few of them. And even when you go back and watch like uh, the first Tim Burton Batman, it doesn't. it's still a fun movie, but it feels like you can feel the 80s of it. Like, it very much feels of its time. And we just didn't have a lot of... There were not a lot of cool superhero movies until X-Men and Spider-Man came along and the technology caught up enough that you could do a lot of cool stuff and not have it... I mean, like, if you remember, I'm sure you must have watched, like, the 70s Spider-Man TV series. I've seen clips of it, yeah. Where it's like the camera's turned on the side and he's climbing up the wall. I like that stuff. Listen up, true believers! (laughs) Yeah. You know, I loved Tim Burton. I mean, um, first of all, I loved Tim Burton's first Batman. I haven't seen it recently, but I just remember it was great. It was so much fun. It was big and exciting. I, I was really invigorated by that. But m- I would also say Richard Donner's Superman was like awesome. so good. It was incredible. That was a com- action comic book brought to life on the big screen like I never saw. Yes. And I used to be a big uh, Reeves fan, the guy that was in that TV show. Faster than a speeding bullet. George Reeves, yeah. More powerful than a locomotive. Yeah. And that was really, that was cheesy, but Superman came to life with Richard Donner. And I thought Batman did with Tim Burton. Um, and, I, and I loved X-Men with, uh, with Singer, Singer's vision of it. It was great. But yeah, things became possible with the advent of CG. And Hollywood finally opened their ears to making comic book movies. I don't think they realized how much, I don't know how they forgot. Because Superman and Batman were so popular, but... They forgot for a time that people just love comic books. Yeah. And those comic book heroes and the stories of uh, us weaklings becoming mighty. Probably the oldest story in the book. Yeah. I mean, do you like the idea of working on a trilogy? Just in the sense that, you know, by the time Superman, by the time Spider Man 3 came out, it's like you must have been living with that for like 12 years. Like it must have been like a substantial chunk of your life. At that point, are you like, yeah, no, I, I think I'm, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do something else. Or do you feel like, no, I like telling a lot of stories in the I, same... I didn't get tired of it. I, I really uh, love... I always loved that Peter Parker character that Stan Lee created and his whole universe. The fact that he had two different girlfriends and, you know, I, I always wanted to have a girlfriend. This guy's got two girls. Like <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievable. And they're calling him a nerd. I never quite understood that. But... um no, I, I love the characters and I, I, I love the actors, you know, the relationships that you form with your working partners. And so I didn't really get tired of it. I, I'm not a guy that needs to show people I can do this or that differently. I just like a good story and good characters and to entertain the audience. Yeah. And do you, uh, do you think that it's... Because po- I always wonder, like, if all of a sudden you got super how- superpowers, philosophically, how would you... I think you. I think you would jump to Venom much quicker than, like I don't know. I just think it, I just think that power. You think is, people would go um, evil faster. I just think it's a little corrupting, and that you would start to, you know, it would start to feed on. Certain... I think that just says more about you than anyone else. I agree. I agree. <laughs> that is in general. I, I feel that's you're a, both fired. That's uh, a, that's a problem you've got. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, is he fired now? You're gonna fire Sam? Right? Yeah, Sam, you're fired. <laughs> All right. From what? <laughs> no, but I just, I just, just that idea of you know, like, like power, like too much power corrupting, but. I think it's, um, it's like success with these movie stars. If they've been in the business, I see this a lot, for a long time, and they know how hard it is to get a job, and they know 
Um, they respect the craft of acting after 20 to 30 years, and then they get their big success. I see them remain very level-headed. Yeah. Other kids, unfortunately, some kids break to stardom right away, and they're a little unbalanced. I think if it depends about your background. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is the, uh, the, the sort of – the overnight success thing is – is pretty rough because I don't think anyone can prepare someone emotionally for what that's like. And then all of a sudden, if you're making a lot of money for people, you're surrounded by people like, oh, yeah, anything you want, anything you want. And yeah. then how can you not go a little crazy? That's what I like about the Superman story that Richard Donner did. He really spends a lot of time with Clark, even though he's got the powers. They're forced to be hidden. And um, you really see the parents uh, instilling family values and good morals with the kid. So you really believe by the time he flying around that he's carrying all that with him. It makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Unlike uh, Spider-Man, who never really grew up. He's the one that probably would have gone nutty, a little more nutty. You think so? Yeah. Well, especially because, you know, part of it is, I mean, it's interesting that it starts as sort of a vengeance tale in a weird way, but then sort of spins out of somehow he manages to like, oh, well, Uncle Ben infused him with enough. Like, he finally started listening. Like, Ben was such a good guy. That it goes from sort of a vengeance play into now I have a responsibility to, to do good things. Well, it's almost that. I would tweak it and say it's Uncle Ben's trying to tell the teenager how to live his life, trying to tell him to be responsible. He says, screw off. I don't need you to tell me how to live my life. And because of his irresponsibility, the fact that he was unwilling to learn that lesson, it caused the death of his uncle. Mm-hmm. And so every day from that point on, he's trying to pay down a debt of guilt that he feels Toward, the, because, toward his uncle's death because he didn't listen. But it's similar to what you said. Yeah. And you've also uh, you've produced a ton of television, too. Yes, yes. Um, my partner, Rob Tapper, does most of the TV producing, but uh, we made Xena, Warrior Princess. And Hercules. Hercules, that's yeah. right. And Spartacus. Spartacus. More recently. And Seeker, too, right? You guys... That's right. Yeah. I produced Seeker and... Um, now we're working on the Evil Dead TV show starring Bruce Campbell. Yes, I yeah. know. So it's for stars, right? Yes. That's very exciting. Where, how far in the process are you guys? My brother and I finished the pilot. Now we're trying to find the showrunner and the, the writing staff. How does it feel to go? Man. I mean, it must. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, what? <laughs> what did you say? Something in your throat? Oh, yeah, are you a writer? I've just. Listen. Uh... Look at him. The beard, the army jacket, <laughs> the, the glasses. What do you think? It's cold. i got to go back and write internet dick jokes for Hardwick to say. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if that would translate to what he needs. He um, can do more. I'll just totally crush, the, crush his dreams. Uh, but, but, but just read some of your stuff for him right now. Just read some of it. <laughs> well, uh, Sam, you'll just sit there. What, is it, what does it feel like to go... Time already? <laughs> My car is... I think you'll find the doors are quite locked. Um... <laughs> Quite locked. Quite locked. Uh, what, so, does it, is this room actually stretching? <laughs> what does it feel like to go back? Does it feel like you hadn't been gone from the Evil Dead world at all? That's right. I've made three different Evil Dead movies. Every time my career kind of runs out, I jump back and make another one because I can. Because I can. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and now uh, I'm doing it again, making another Evil Dead picture. This time, I think because um, we really. We made an Evil Dead remake because we had heard that people want another Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. So we made, got a great filmmaker, Fede Alvarez, to do his own version of Evil Dead. And it was actually successful at the box office. But then it didn't quiet the, the outspoken fans of Evil Dead down. They said, but we want to see the, your Evil Dead. We like this, but we want that. 
So I thought, okay, they really are insistent. They, I hear them, and there's probably a crowd that wants to see this nutty thing. So we, that's really why we're doing it, and we want to work together. Bruce and I and Rob all are great friends. I love working with Bruce, too. It's so much fun. And I haven't worked with him in 20 years, so not in the, not in the starring role, so I'd love to sure. do that. I cannot mm-hmm. wait. Is it going to take place in S-Mart mostly? Or? Yeah, it takes place in a value mart, and um, <laughs> Bruce is uh, still the stock boy. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, only now he has, uh, you know, incontinence issues. He's still fighting <laughs> the evil dead. He's just uh, a little older now. Is it post-Army uh, of Darkness? It's, um, we don't actually, because I don't want to flash back to those pictures too much. Sure. Um, because, in fact, even they have different histories among themselves. Sure. I'm kind of more approaching it like, um, like he's the Clint Eastwood of monster fighters. He's like unforgiven of monster fighters. Right. So I don't really dwell, delve into what happened in Outlaw Josie Wales so much. It's more like that was years ago. Yeah, I fought the monsters. Now I'm kind of living life. The way I like to live as a stock boy, and I'm, uh, I'm uh, kind of hiding out from them. But they come back, and now is the that is the reason the series starts. The monsters have come back, and they want to tango with Bruce. So kind of like the last scene in Army of Darkness when he's like back at the Smart, and then the, the the demon comes to get him and he shoots him, and it's that's like kind of right. yeah, kind of that's like you know that's me and my friends were like, there's got to be a fourth one now <laughs> within the in the real world where they're coming after him. But that's exactly what the uh, the show's going to be. It um, doesn't really pick up from that point, but, but something like that, yeah. Th- thematic, kinda, really yeah. S- thematically similar, yeah. That's great. I also, um, Drag Me to Hell is also a fantastic. So uh, thanks, Paul. It's, uh, I, Thank uh, I was in a real bad mood the entire day, shitty day at work. Didn't want, like, I already had tickets to go see the movie. It was like Friday opening night, and I was just, it's just I was like, it's like I, I shouldn't even go. I'm just going to fucking bum everybody out. And then I went and just felt like a million bucks walking out of the theater. <laughs> only, you, just, like, only you would feel that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coming out of that movie, I think it ends with the girl being dragged, dragged out of the house. to hell. Yeah, yeah. that's the best ending because you're like because it, it, she just gets dragged and that's it. You're like, holy yeah. shit. Yeah, Perfect. no, but just like so many, so many scares and so many laughs and just like it just like just that like kind of almost it was like a workout. Just the rhythm of being scared and laughing and and it was just oh, it was great. fantastic. Thanks for the thanks for that. Yeah. Did anyone ever did 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 did, did you, any studio weigh in on that movie at all or was it just all you're like did anyone say like. Maybe she does put the right coin in the woman's mouth, and then she gets away. Maybe she them? finds a silver dollar in a house right. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, I had a lot of partners. Uh, Ghost House Pictures and Universal Pictures were my partners, and they all had notes. And I took every good note I could and incorporated it into the picture, logic issues or continuity or story issues. And But uh, fortunately, I had final cut. So I, uh, at this point, I can have final cut, and I can... Finally, just take the good notes, and if they aren't really working for me, I don't have to do them. Okay. Was that fun, like going from you know such like big scale movies, uh, you know Spider Man uh, movies, and then just going back to this kind of fun, you know, scary funny movie? It was like so was it nice. almost was it? It was great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, because you don't have a lot of pressure on you. The studio's not thinking if this doesn't make money, you know, we're really going to have a bad quarter. Um, and and st- I don't think studios can help that. There's so much. Uh, scrutiny, so much pressure on them about how they did this quarter. How do your movies do? Are we going to lose the top brass now because this last movie didn't do well? So it's a lot of people's jobs at stake when you make those really big movies and you spend a lot of money. So it's great just not worrying about that, worrying about the audience only. Um, will they like this? What are they thinking is going to happen? I'm going to outsmart them. I'm going to get them good. You know, yeah. I like doing that, uh, playing 
with the audience and guessing what they're expecting. Sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I'm right, and giving him uh, giving it to him. Sometimes giving him something else. Yeah. Does that that's... make it not fun to do a big budget movie? Like, would you would you rather just go like, eh, just give me a few million bucks and I'll just go make something fun with with no pressure? They're all great. I'm thrilled that they let me play in that big sandbox because I can get um, if there was a big scene where the meteor hit the earth, you know, get. You, if you're a filmmaker that has proven you can make some box office money, you can get 500 extras running down the streets of New York City. It's so cool looking. I mean, if you know what to do with it. Yeah, no, I didn't shoot that scene, but um, I'm just saying the tools are there to make incredible sights. You just have to be careful not to abuse them or, um, or waste them. But um, if they demand it, you've got those tools. So it's a great luxury. So I love making those big budget pictures if the script is good. And I, I like making a smaller film, too. Listen, just a little food for thought here. Um, I, I, I would I would think that in the Evil Dead world that uh, Ash would go on a on a small nerdy podcast to talk about his monster hunting. I just <laughs> in you mean? In, well, but who would I get to play the parts? I, I, <gasps> Sam, uh, Sam, Sam, uh, Mark, you could get Mark Maron. No, shut up, shut Adam shut, Carolla. Shut your fucking mouth. Oh, oh, you. Oh, oh, you <laughs> could, I mean, I don't oh, know. Wait, I just wait. No, no, you you could probably I, play that part. Wait a minute, yeah. Sam. That's a great idea that well, you just I'm a had. Too energetic. I, I was I'll, just thinking. I'll do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Matt will write the scene that then we're in, and then Joan will critique it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible job! Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, not the one I wanted at all. <laughs> That's why they call him old terrible job Jonah. I don't like that joke. Yeah, no. So are you? Uh, uh, are you? You're actually writing all. Are you pretty involved in writing all the episodes of it? No, it hasn't really started. We wrote the pilot, and then we worked with a really good writer, Tom Spezialli. He did a rewrite of it, which I really appreciated. Made it more like a television show works, uh, like a working pilot, because we really never had written a pilot before. And he brought a lot of character to it and humor, but. We're assembling the team of writers right now that will write the series, and this is going to be kind of a, a very new experience for me. Yeah. Are, are you? Do you like to work a lot, or do you need time to like? Are you like, uh, you know, eight to five, and then I got to go out and garden or relax or whatever? No, I like to work a lot. And those Spider-Man movies you mentioned—they have really long schedules. They're like 110 days, and they've got uh, like three units working at once. So it's a tremendous amount of pre-production intensity, production intensity, and post-production intensity. Gets In post-production, you look at like 150 digital shots a day and give specific notes to the animators about that frame looks like the weight of gravity is not really pulling his arm down. In this moment, I need to see this character's face a little bit more, and he's uh, moving too slowly to actually be falling. You kind of have to work with a lot of animators, lighting directors, department heads, and be very specific about what you want in each and every part of each and every frame. So it's very work intensive, and I like it. I love it, and I um, don't really like time off so much. What would you? Uh, oh, do you not? I, I hate time off too. Do you, are you just bad at sitting around? Yeah, I don't know what to do. So I, uh, my kids don't want me hassling them, you know. With their, their, <laughs> have you done your homework? Yes, I've done my homework. You want me to read it through with you again? No. <laughs> Dad, I'm 28. <laughs> Your kids home. You've been making Spider-Man's forever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it's as lousy with Spider-Man. <laughs> well, how how do you describe the job of director? Like how do, how do you? It's because it, I'm sure it it must seem different now than it did when you first started. I would imagine. So how would you describe it? I would describe it as telling each and every actor, 
department head, prop person, music writer, the story in greatest detail that you can that you're trying to tell and that they're a part of and make them really understand it in great detail so we're all telling that exact same story. I think that's the job of directing. And then how do you know, how open are you or flexible are you along the way to, to going, oh, I, maybe I was wrong about this vision? All the time I'm wrong, and I'm very, I think I'm a very open storyteller. Other people may not think so, but I take all of these great artists, I want their input, I want them to make it a richer, better story than I could have ever made on my, on my own. And in fact, the, I find that the best directors surround themselves with the most intelligent people. I, I try and be, and it's not hard, to be the dumbest person on the set. And I usually am. I got a brilliant visual effects guy, a brilliant director of photography, brilliant actors. I mean, that's the best thing you can do. It's a little intimidating, but it's the best way to go. What's been the most challenging project for you? The most challenging project was... Uh, each and every one of those Spider-Man movies were pretty damned challenging. Dragged me to hell. I was on familiar ground. Like you mentioned, it's a yeah. simple horror film. There wasn't a lot of pressure. I love playing in horror. But working in that big budget arena with so much is at stake, uh, with much beloved characters that Stan Lee created, and people really hold them so dear to them that you don't want to mess up. And I messed up plenty with the third Spider-Man. So people you know, hated me for... For years, they still hate me. They give, you, they give you shit for that? All the time. Yeah. Why? What do they say? Um, we hate you. <laughs> <laughs> just a non-specific... I, I want to read into that too much. <laughs> yeah. you're, just, you're just kind of trying to dig in, and I don't want to... What do you think they're being... Don't unpack that. About? Don't unpack it. <laughs> oh, just a, a, a movie that didn't work very well. You know, I had a lot of... I tried to make it work, but um, didn't really believe in all the characters, and so that can't be hidden from people who love Spider-Man. If a director doesn't love something, it's wrong of them to make it. So many other people love it. Well, I think it's, I mean, I, I, think, I think the third in a series is, is challenging because people have already seen the characters, you've introduced the characters, you've already introduced another thing, and it's like, well, you have to, you have to raise the stakes every time. Like, how do you keep raising the stakes when the stakes are high, you know, in each movie? That feels, it feels like the most challenging part. I think that was the thinking going into it. And I think that's what doomed us. <laughs> I should have just stuck with the characters and the relationships and progressed them to the next step and not tried to top the bar. Mm. I think that was my mistake. Interesting, interesting. But because Army of Darkness was such, a, like, was such a big movie compared to the first two. And it, You're right. It, it, totally, it totally worked. Yeah. It, that, oh, good. I'm glad you think it works. That didn't work for a lot of people. You know, yeah. uh, but, um, but thank you for that. Yeah, but the goal wasn't to try and top the other pictures. It was to tell a bigger story, but um, with a different sensibility about it. But it wasn't trying to top. Yeah. It wasn't trying to. That's not a good approach. That is that went into the thinking of a lot of the people that worked on Spider-Man Three, and it was uh, not good for us. Yeah. Well, again, I guess it's sort of hard when there's so much money at stake and so much everything at stake and everyone's afraid of losing their jobs and it's like and everyone wants to be able to blame everyone else. I told them that, yeah. but I don't know why the blah blah blah. <laughs> I mean, there must be so much that you know, like the 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 story that a film tell the story that's told about a film afterwards. I would be interested to know what the margin of 
actual truth is versus what what actually happened working on a movie. Nobody's really interested in this story of why things didn't work. I mean, except you. <laughs> You're the only guy I know. But but most people just want to talk about the successful pictures and how did they how were they created and you know what were your thoughts and what elements went into making a success. But very few times do you hear filmmakers talking about they're bad movies. I mean, people aren't interested in them. But bad's not... A, I don't think bad's the right word. I think... Awful. I, no. <laughs> I think... Because I think you... I think you can have something, a creative endeavor that is tremendously financially successful and for whatever reason you didn't feel personally like, this didn't feel like a success for me because I didn't... I gave into this or I didn't feel like I did this. And I feel like everything... You know, it's interesting to hear you say you thought you made mistakes because that's where you learn the most. Like you learn the most from, I think, from your mistakes. Don't you? Mm. Don't you think? Yeah, I got a whole lifetime of learning from that picture. <laughs> if you, if you well, could, you were, you were, if you could go back and do it over again, would you do it over again? I wouldn't make that movie. Yeah. And if I had a different story with characters that I cared about, that I thought was engaging and true to the Spider-Man universe, yes, in a second. I love Spider-Man. Right. Um, so that was never the issue. Just that I made the wrong story the wrong way. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's everything. But you were talking about like, you know, taking, you know, all these very beloved characters and having this kind of big thing. It's a, you did the same thing with the Oz movie. And uh, like, I think you pulled that off really well. So, you don't I, think so? Did you, did, you, I, did you not like I that? did the best I could. I thought, it, I thought it was, I had a lot of fun watching it. It was a, it was a blast. It's and it was like, you know, and I, I, it's like, I love like all three Oz movies. I think Return to Oz is also like a great, That weird, is really dark, cool. Yeah, it's a really weird, weird. Dark movie. Underrated. That's a classic. Yeah. You know. It's like a, Walter Murch, I think, directed that. Yes, yeah. Starring great for, great a filmmaker. young Feruza Balk. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you um, go up to the, um, if the, uh, up at Skywalker Ranch, like they have some of the wheelies. Yeah. One of the, some of the most uh, terrifying creatures ever to grace the screen. Yes. What were they? They were uh, they had uh, wheels as feet and hands, and so they had their like long limbs and uh, oh, wow. like they just kind of rolled around. So they were all kind of hunched over, and it's like ugh. yeah, and they just kind of rolled around. And it's uh, I thought it was something. I was like I was like this must be some kind of eighties extreme thing they thought of. Uh, and then I uh, someone like print like posted like pictures from the book, like the drawings of them oh. are even more horrifying because it's like their limbs turn into wheels. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, it's frightening. Weird. It's great. But like, with that said, with like, I, I enjoy Return to Oz, and I also re- enjoyed, you know, uh, yours as well. Thank you. Thank you. Is uh, do you think that the do you think that the film that that reliance on CG for people like do you like do you kind of take that out sometime and go no we have to think practically because I think it's so easy to go like oh you could just throw money at a problem rather than like how can we really how can we really make this look and feel as authentic as possible. I agree. That is a bad but common default that filmmakers often go to. They don't stop and really figure out what's the best way to make this picture or this effect. Instead, they oftentimes just rely on the magic of CG where anything is possible. But the audience uh, doesn't seem to really like that. They, I think more and more they appreciate the practical, practical approach to filmmaking, whether it's a set or a landscape or a, or a visual effect. Yeah. yeah. Because now it's like people just take for granted, like, oh, computers can just make, I can just make stuff on my phone. Like, yeah. it, it's like, it's so accessible to everyone. But to build something. I mean, like, yeah. and I've said it a ton of times before, but, 
in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake where there's the scene where he pushes through the the wall, which they did practically. Should have done practically. It's like it must be even cheaper now to do it practically. Why did it probably <laughs> cost them more money to make it look well, shitty? Well, you know, there's just a shortage on the stretchy fabric, Joe. <laughs> yeah, we can't yeah. get a guy in. We can't match the wallpaper. It's just going to take hours. You know what one of the shames of CG is that so many of the craftsmen that were specialists in their field for instance, miniatures, mm. there aren't a lot of guys that know how to photograph, construct, deconstruct, put together and light a miniature. All those fields get so little work time now that they just don't have the experience. I'm not saying there aren't guys out there, but they're probably one hundredth of the workforce that there was in those particular specialty fields. Yeah. So you're going to blow up a building now and have actors around it my guess is they're not going to really put explosives and launch cork mortars off a downtown building because it's too expensive. And so what we normally would have done with miniatures is now just they aren't around anymore, so they become prohibitively expensive, and so therefore it gets relegated to the category of CG. Oh, wow. And, and when you see like a really good practical effect, I feel like I have the same feeling that I had watching like CG in like Jurassic Park, where I'm like... Wow, that's really amazing. Like yeah. now I get super excited about a well done practical <laughs> yeah, yeah. effect. You're right, me too. Because yeah. you because you appreciate the craftsman, like you appreciate exactly. oh, someone really had to work on that and that's that's actually you know, in the early days of CG, it was like, wow, that's so... How much talent was involved in this? And now it's like... What I love is when you see a picture of something that you just assumed was CG, and you see a behind-the-scenes photo, and you're like, holy shit, that was practical? Yeah. Like, those pictures of, like... I mean, it's a little different, but, like, those pictures of Stan Winston with the Arnold puppet on his back, like, doing the walking in Terminator 2. Oh, oh yeah, like, yeah. You yeah, never realize cool. that that's a fucking practical effect. That's not Schwarzenegger. That's a puppet on Stan yeah. Winston's back. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. There's a ton of, like, a, there's this one Tumblr I found that's, like, dedicated to all the practical effects from, like, 80s horror movies. And they have a ton from The Gate. Which are just so fantastic with the claymation and like the yeah. stop motion and yeah. it's like the practical effects they did in that stuff was so amazing. It's just like it c- it can be done and that should be done. I think were there were there were there practical web shooting? Was there practical web shooting on the set? We had practical webs that were post his firing of them and once they had solidified. But no, we never tried to do a liquid web hitting something yeah. and solidifying. I I just didn't think it could be done. Yeah. I think there should have been a follow-up short of the. There's a guy who's uh, basically has similar powers, but he's just like Spider-Man's janitor. He's just got to go around and clean all the like. <laughs> he's the only guy that can reach the fucking city. Looks like an attic now. It's so the tensile strength of it is so strong. <laughs> How the fuck does a janitor scrape that off? Because <laughs> he's got superpowers he's got, too. He's got like he with he great like strength a, comes great no, responsibility think, to clean up this town. Think yeah. practically about it for a second. Yeah, the city would be covered because no one's gonna be able to get that off except Spider-Man. Yeah, maybe, but they just maybe, go back through and like they start calling New York though, like like a web, like like it does disintegrate. Like it down. over time, it does break down. Yeah, it's still think? it's still it breaks down. I think it does. Yeah. Okay. It's a super version of what happens in nature. It probably takes longer, but I think it does. It's got it's going to be there for a bit, though. You know, everyone's going to start calling it the Jizz Apple. No, they're not not going to do that. But just the city just littered with helicopters (laughs) trapped in the the tensile strength is strong enough to stop a subway car full of (laughs) six cars behind it. 
Yeah, which is still be, my favorite hard... scene in any superhero movie oh, ever. Cool. When he stops that fucking train. That's, That's a good one. Great, I, was, yeah, the, uh, I remember Spider-Man 2 is so like fucking good. Going too far. Yeah. I saw Spider-Man 2 with a bunch of comedians and like the the midnight, the night it opened. And we fucking loved it so much that Brian, Brian Posehn, yeah. a comedian friend of ours, at the end of the movie he goes... I just came on the shit in my pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, that's when we were at the at the the, the uh, Chinese, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 So good, so oh, good. Thanks, guys. Good movie. Um, yeah, but oh, speaking of Spider Man too, though, the uh, scene uh, where Doc Ock uh, like comes back um, is one of the my all time favorite scenes on uh, the train. Uh, no, no, it's like when like the doctors are uh, like, oh. and and like there's all it's very it's very much like old like you know. Evil Dead style shooting right. with like the cameras ramping up to people. Oh like yeah, that. yeah, and it runs. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. just all the like the quick like. Zip, zip, zip. That's like one of my. I, think, I, I used to like rewind that all the time. Oh cool, yeah, that's that. the best superhero movie. I still think Spider Man Two is the best, even after all these Marvel movies. Now we've all turned into Chris Farley. Remember that time? Remember when you made Spider Man? So I keep on thinking about with uh, Paul McCartney. <laughs> remember when you were in the Beatles? Remember when you were in the Beatles? You gonna interview Paul McCartney next week? On Thursday, yeah. Oh, this week? Yeah. So yeah. how are you going to approach it to make it different? I, that's what I was asking the fellas. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I have the same question. Like, I, what has he not been asked? Like, of, of all of all the people yeah. that I mean, it's like, well, I mean, we must have asked you a ton of stuff that you've answered that you've been, that you've answered before. No, you put a funny spin on it. It's all different. Hey, oh, that's nice. Maybe that's hey, the thing funny we spins. Did. What if we asked him about Spider Man Three? <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> um, but don't I don't know most. what to. Yeah, I don't know because it, it's. You know, I mean, my with a guy like that, my interest is generally like what's the human side of his experience? Like not so much like you know, all the accomplishments, but like what what does it feel like? Like what is how did he perceive it? Like what was the real human? How did it affect his relationships? How did it affect, you know, like was he did he did he write to escape? Like how did he yeah. get through, you know? I mean, it's it, how do you go from all of a sudden being I mean because even though there's like you know we have the Lady Gagas of the world now it's like that was such a specific moment in time yeah where it where it was sort of like society politics like everything the the way everything was done completely changed yeah and it's like and, and now our entertainment culture is so splintered because people can get their you know their entertainment from so many different sources and we're much more of a niche culture but at that time there were you know there was like radio and records the yeah. end like what's well, funny yeah even yeah. like in like there's a Jerry Lewis uh, in the his documentary like he was talking about him and Dean um, like just like the, he's like he the only way to describe it he was, he was like it's like the Beatles like we were like as big as the Beatles he's all understand this is before the Beatles yeah. And so like it's still even though it like the Beatles craze happened after it, he still used it as a watermark to describe wow. how people reacted to them like being out in public. Yeah. It's just it's become Same. like a thing. It's like you know it's like Kleenex. It's, it's the thing you say. It's Beatlemania. I'm interested in his creative process. I'm interested to know if it's changed any and if it if it's still because whenever you're making a thing, you you go to the place in your brain that's comfortable. Like oh this is where I go to make this thing. Does know, that change over time? I don't know why time? he thought it would be okay to flip over a right-handed guitar and then restring it. Because no one was doing that. Because he was a lefty. Do you have any questions yeah, for, have for, for Paul McCartney? What would Sam Raimi ask Paul McCartney? If he wants me to direct his next rock video. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we met oh, this did, promising young director yeah. back in Los Angeles. Oh, tell the, I'm not sure. Were we recording when he told the thing about Iggy Pop? Yeah, but it was 
It was before. Oh, uh, I just that's like speaking of making videos. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell Chris about because you weren't here no, about the Iggy Pop thing. It's just so funny. I was uh, making a rock video for Iggy Pop because this film company said, "Do you want to make any rock videos?" He said, "Only if you can get like Iggy Pop. Otherwise, I really don't want to make a rock video." <laughs> and they called back and said, "We can get Iggy Pop." So I said, "Great." Uh, so he came by my place. We we're going to talk about ideas, and my brother was there who helps me write and. Iggy says, uh, what's that? And he pointed to a sheet I had in my house. And I said, oh, that, that's... Uh, I pulled it back with some dramatic flourish, and there was a guitar, harmonica, and drum set. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, let's jam, Iggy. <laughs> oh, shit. So we played... He, he kind of was fr- uh, taken aback, but he was really cool about it. And he sang with us, and um, we sang some songs that I had written with my brother, my brother was playing guitar, he was singing, and I was playing harmonica. And we recorded it, and um, that's what I'd recommend for you and Paul McCartney. Yeah. Free, 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 free. By the way, I can't play any of those instruments, but... Uh, you can bring your melodica. That won't stop me. Where is this recording? Where do you... Where do you... I have it on, on cassette. And, um, you know, it really put Iggy at ease that we were so bad. He goes... Halfway into the plane, goes, oh, okay, I can do this. I just thought you guys were good or something. <laughs> That's why he was a little freaked out. Have you ever it. put those out anywhere? No. Did you put them in a movie, just in the background on a, like a stereo? Ah, no. Someone's just like getting in their car, comes out, go, ugh. It's just so I can say I did it. Yeah. I had Iggy sing backup for me. Oh, oh man. Awesome. So you wouldn't let <laughs> us put that at the end of the podcast. Like, do you want to play now? I want to be your dog? No, 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 no. I want to play my own stuff. It's <laughs> <Exactly>. so weird. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and then you ended up you ended up working with him. Well, we shot his rock video uh, called Cold Metal. Yeah, he was a great performer, as you know. But I mean, just to see him up close, it's like having my own rock show every day while I'm working with him. Oh my God, he's performing for me. It was really cool. He's such a nice guy and puts everything he can into pleasing the audience as a performer. You know, let me throw that. myself on this metal grate again? No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You've done it. No, you're good. Clean up, please. Oh, too late. You're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that idea where you can almost like, oh, good idea, Iggy. Let's play songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure glad you thought about that. <laughs> Just like putting the podcast in the Evil Dead series, Sam. It's uh, you understand where we're coming from now. <laughs> you're kidding about that? No, I. That was the sheet. That was oh, the sheet. Wow. That That's we, the sheet. That we yeah, out well, of the way. That... <laughs> I really want this show to be successful. Oh, fuck. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't help you there. <laughs> do, you want to talk about, uh, do you want to talk about Murder of a Cat for a second? Yes. Yeah, I saw the trailer. It looks fantastic. Oh, I'm excited. Great. So you produced this, and your wife, Gillian Green, wrote, uh, directed it. Yes. She pronounced her name Gillian. Gillian. It's spelled the same. Apologies. And, um, uh, no, you would have no way of knowing. And uh, she directed that film. It was her first feature film. She did a great job. She found the script on the blacklist, which there was an article about, I think, in today's mm-hmm. L.A. Times. And for those of you that don't know, it's a, it's a great, uh, tasteful assistant who developed a list of scripts that uh, were highly thought of among his other friends, development executives. And anyway, she read the script and loved it and um, wanted to make it as her first feature film. Now, she had made some short films before, but had never made a feature. And she met with the writers, and she showed them her short film, and they... Liked it, and um, then she went about raising the money. So she did a really, really good job. It stars uh, Greg Kinnear and um, J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons has a supporting he's role. He's so great. Yeah, he's great. He's really great. Fran Kranz is in it, and um, it's a really funny, sweet, cute picture. And I'm very proud of the good job she did. 
That's fantastic. And I think it's available December... It was December 5th, right? It came out December 5th? Yes. Okay, good. On VOD. And yes, people... it's probably available right now. Excellent. Nice. I'm positive it must be available right now. It must be. Absolutely. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say or plug or say? Are you on social media at all? No, not much. No, I just uh, like to keep my privacy there. Yeah. But I'm, uh, you know, I'm always on the internet. I do a lot of writing and uh, I'm... And it, but but to go back to her film, I, I highly recommend it, and I uh, hope uh, hope the audience enjoys it. It looks really good. It's, a, it's uh, the lead is the guy who was um, kind of the dorky guy in Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, yes, that's him, and he's uh, he looks really good. He's also really great in the movie The TV Set. Oh yeah you know? yeah yeah yeah. He's that guy. He's like the real yeah, like yeah, big yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, I think it looks like a great movie. Well, I mean, as someone who, I, I mean, I hope you're not as hard on yourself as it's like when you're like, oh, I've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, it's nice to hear. I think it's nice for anyone to hear that someone who has done all the amazing things you have is still goes, oh, yeah, you know, I never really know anything. I mean, I think that's, do you think that's the ultimate wisdom is never feeling like you know anything? No, the ultimate wisdom would be to know something. Okay, good. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. I never understood that part, that, that thing. <laughs> But I'm uh, I'm learning, and I I try and take what I've learned and apply it as I move forward in life, like we all do. And um, I find uh, I don't feel like overburdened with my mistakes. I just feel like I try and be aware where I messed up, so I can uh, make a better entertainment, better movie moving forward. But I just hope that you're aware of all the places that you didn't mess up. I mean, I hope Thank you're you. aware. I hope you're aware of all the cool stuff that you've done and how Thank much you. you've. Changed things like cha- literally changed genres, horror and su- superhero and action. Like I really hope that I hope some part of your brain absorbs the the really great stuff. Thanks a lot. Yeah, That's Crime Wave nice was a lot of fun to watch as a kid. I just want to let you know you shouldn't feel so bad because it was a lot of fun. Okay. <laughs> I do feel a little tiny bit better about it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, my it's, God, uh, I haven't slept in like twenty eight uh, years. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what a great! Yeah. I appreciate. It. Thanks for those kind words. No, you, no, you're right. Got to keep the positive in mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. You know, ultimately, when you kind of look back at your body of work, or you know, or someday when you look back and you go, ah, I think I'm done with. It. I think I'm ready to just kick back and relax. Like, what is it that you want to take away from everything? Like, do you see a grand arc to everything, or is it just sort of a project by project? I just look at myself more as an entertainer. I think you're referring to somebody who's more of an artist, a painter, uh, somebody who creates works that will go on. I'm more like, I think, just an entertainer. And I'm only as happy as the audience is entertained. And I don't look at, like, I have a body of work. I just think, I bombed that night. This time they really liked it. I was in the crowd. They liked that one. You know, I'm more uh, live for the moment of them enjoying the, the work. Excellent. And I suffer when they don't. That's the, that's the downside of being an entertainer. You can't say, like you were saying earlier, it's not for them. One day they'll understand it. You can't hide behind that when you're an entertainer. There really is, they don't like it. I've got nothing. Mm-hmm. They don't like it. So it's, uh, but it's better too because you could say, I was in it for the laugh and they're laughing. You know, that's 100%, 100% entertainment for the guy who told the joke. Well, it was an honor to have you here. Thanks. And I'm so glad that you that you gave us uh, uh, so much of your time, uh, Sam Raimi. A pleasure. I'm, thanks for having me on your show. Enjoy your burrito, Thank everyone. Thanks. thanks for letting us blabber on about how much you Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 65th National Finals of Distinguished Young Women. Every year, one girl from every state leaves her family, her whole life behind, for two weeks and spends each day training, practicing, preparing. Because to win this competition, she needs to wow a panel of judges with her academic record, her athletic ability, her speaking skills, and a show-stopping talent. I met her and I was like, she's gonna win. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. When I sing that song about being a black woman in America, there's gonna be backlash about that. Oh, just so happy. So happy. I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. And then we stayed with them for the next year, unpacking just what happened those two weeks in Mobile. I'm Shimoliai, and from Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.